This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour from Food FM. This week, we're celebrating the end of Series 8 with a highlights edition. The FT columnist Alice Lascelles talks cocktails. Sarah Abbott, MW, has a creed de coeur for old vines. Carlos Agreos of Quinta Noval talks about the Douro. The Isle of Wight distilleries, Xavier Baker, talks about innovating with gin. Plus, there's the renowned Bordeaux expert Stephen Brook. And find out what happened when I tried my hand at blending a Bordeaux red. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Alice Lascelles has been writing about the drinks world for almost 20 years, a columnist for the Financial Times. She's a regular on TV and radio too, and she's a past winner of the prestigious Fortnum and Mason Drinks Writer of the Year Award, and also the equally prestigious IWSC Spirits Communicator of the Year. Her latest project is a book, The Cocktail Edit, and Alice told me that making a cocktail does not have to be complicated. You can make a cocktail with like a teaspoon and a glass and a coffee strainer or something like that. So um, yeah, they're, they're super simple, but there are lots of little details that you can attend to that will really elevate a drink from something quite ordinary to something really special. Oh, well, go on then. Mm. Inspire <laughs> us with that elevation. Elevate us. Yeah, yeah. Well, my number one tip is freeze your glassware. This will instantly improve pretty much any cocktail but particularly the ones that are served up or without ice so you know your martinis and and your manhattans so minimum just put your glass in the freezer while you're mixing the drink for a minute or two but ideally just keep some glasses in the freezer all the time just a couple of glasses because they get really deep frozen then and there's something really tantalizing and beautiful about a drink that comes you know in an ice glazed coupe so that would be my first tip, very easy thing to do. And if you don't have room in your freezer, you know, finish up the fish fingers and make, make room. My second tip would be, you know, nail down a few really good but simple garnishes, like learn how to do a really nice citrus twist because that can add a delicious fragrance, not just alcoholic drinks, but, you know, a glass of water with a, a lovely orange or lemon or grapefruit twist or a yuzu twist or something a bit more exotic is really lovely. If you're using mint, give it a slap between your palms before you put it in because that really amps up the scent. It's those little tricks that improve a drink. And also ice is my other obsession. 
using lots of ice, good quality ice, big cubes of ice, because it will work much harder in the drink and, and you'll get a drink with much better definition, but also not too much dilution. Mm. My pet hate is uh, like a gin and tonic with two little melty ice cubes in it. Um, oh, I can't stand it. Drives me mad. No. Yeah, same here. <laughs> My gin and tonic just needs to be cold, properly cold. And um, yeah, I, I, yes, pissy little ice cubes are 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 a bugbear <laughs> of, of mine as well. But um, I'm I'm kind of fascinated how often when I say that to people, people sort of suck their teeth and say. Oh, that's very extravagant using lots of ice. But I mean, you know, we are talking about frozen water here. Of all the ingredients to use in a drink, it's probably the least extravagant one of all. But also there's almost, particularly amongst Brits, there seems to be like almost moral discomfort about using ice. And I, I looked into this. Why do, why do we feel so weird about ice? When you look at America, you go and stay in a hotel and there's an ice machine on every corridor in a hotel, you know. And you can trace it right back to sort of the Charles II, the aristocrats were putting ice in their drinks and this was identified as a sign of the empire's sort of moral decline so we we've always had this sort of anxiety about using ice and the and the victorians also were shocked by having to use straws to drink icy drinks and they thought that was all terribly rude and stuff so yeah, we don't make it easy for ourselves in Britain, but I'm trying to change our attitude to ice. <laughs> yeah, good for you. I mean, the Victorians, <laughs> frankly, the, what were the Victorians not shocked by, to be honest? Yeah. Uh, let's face it. But I know what you mean. You can you can wait 15 minutes for some ice in a hotel in Britain, whereas you just go into the uh, by the lift so in, in an American hotel, as you say, and you get masses of the stuff, which is um, fantastic. Yeah. One of the things I, I love about uh, being in, in the States and having drinks properly cold. Where are you on? On clear ice, by the way, rather than the ice that we tend to make at home that is not clear. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, clear ice is is really stunning. The reason ice is cloudy is not because of impurities in the water. It's actually because of little air bubbles that are trapped in there. So if you, unfortunately, you know, purifying your water or boiling it, so I've tried all of these things, it doesn't make any difference really to whether your ice is clear or not. It is possible to make crystal clear ice at home, but it's incredibly labour-intensive, time-consuming process. Uh, not one I've got time for, although there are lots of guys on um, YouTube who will show you how. But uh, if I want really clear ice, th there's a great little company in London called Ice Studio who nearly went bust during lockdown, who I came across. They nearly went bust because all the bars were closed. So they started doing home deliveries and now they do that all the time. And you can buy, you know, a pillowcase full of beautiful ice blocks or balls or ingots from them. And uh, it's beautiful stuff. And that's what I used to shoot my book. Every everything Ooh. in the book is... You know, my glassware, it, the drinks are all made with real ingredients. You know, I've made the drinks. Um, so this is real. You, it's very easy to make drinks that look like that. Yeah, that's great <laughs> that you've done that. I assumed it was a professional photographer and, uh, you well, know, it's, someone... Oh, it's a professional photographer, yeah, sure. But, um, but, but sorry, yeah, yeah. I mean, I know, I mean the kind of staging, uh, the, the people who kind of food stage. And, uh, and when you see... <laughs> Um, elaborate photo shoots quite a lot of things aren't actually what they purport to be you know they're not actually the food or the drink uh, they've got hairspray yeah. on them or they've got something that yeah. makes them look shiny or blah 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 yeah. uh, but this is this is pretty authentic uh it, what you're picturing in the book then yeah it's really really important for me that they were the real deal so um so yeah everything is actually made really made with the real ingredients and real melting ice, which means, you know, shooting drinks with real ice in them is uh, is hard because they're changing before your very eyes. So you have to be quick to get 
to get a drink, you know, when it's looking its best. But uh, that's also what makes it fun. Mm. And where are you mm. on the size of ice cubes? Do you like big, single uh, spheres or are, mm. are you quite happy with sort of smaller cubes? Well, my kind of favourite ice actually is the, the sort of ice that I've got on the front of my book. Here we've got a picture of an old-fashioned over a kind of completely one irregular hunk of ice, a sort of iceberg. Um, and that's my favourite sort of ice to use in a slow-sipping drink like an old-fashioned. Basically, you just make a big block, you know, fill a, a Tupperware box with water, freeze it overnight, and then just hack it to bits. I just get a knife and a mallet and chop it up. And I love that irregularity of the ice, and it makes every drink look a bit different and interesting. Um, so, yeah, that's that's my favourite sort ah, of ice to good. use. Good excuse for a bit of destruction as well. That, that must yeah, be quite good stress release. satisfying. <laughs> yeah. The book is built around a capsule collection of classics. Um, mm-hmm. Elaborate a little more. Yeah, so we've got – they're all drinks that people have heard of. And the, really they're the sort of drinks also that you will find on most cocktail bars lists in some shape or form. So the drinks that we all know and love the martini old fashion, the daiquiri, the Negroni and so on. I've also got the gin sour in there, which is less of a classic and almost more like a genre of drinks. Because I think if there's one cocktail formula it's worth learning off by heart, it's the gin sour or the sour, which is four parts strong, two parts sour, one part sweet. And if you have that formula under your belt, you can busk a drink out of anything, you know, ingredients from the corner shop or the very finest, you know, gin and lemons from Amalfi. And uh, you can also top it up with soda or champagne or tonic. Um, You can throw herbs in the shake. There's all kinds of ways you can pull it around. It's a bit like learning how to make a a stew and having that the formula for a stew down. And then you can tweak it a million different ways. So I've dedicated a whole chapter to the gin sour as well, because I think that's a, a real cocktail survival kit, that drink. Yeah, I need to get uh, into that, actually. My <laughs> my absolute favourite, the one I always go to, the one I always fancy, is Negroni. I've mm-hmm. loved Negroni for a couple of decades yeah. since some early travels to, to Italy. Of course, it's become in that time enormously fashionable, hasn't it? Yeah, you were ahead of the curve. <laughs> mm. It's uh, yeah, what definitely. makes it perfect for you, because a Negroni can differ a bit, can't it? Well, the lovely thing about the Negroni is it's quite a, a bomb-proof formula isn't it i mean you can do roughly equal parts but you can tilt it in favor of one of any of the components really and it will still taste pretty good last night i had a boulevardier which of course is a negroni made with uh whiskey instead of gin which was really nice um and there's so many new vermouth and campari style bitter liqueurs coming out now there are just loads of different ways to twist it and so there's a whole chapter about negronis in my book as well Mm, that sounds mm. great. Uh, it's mm. really interesting to hear you talking about the classics often being the best, because I have been in a bar where I've had the most sensational Negroni. And I said, my God, what what are you using? And the barman or woman behind the bar has said Campari, Martini Rosso and Beefeater. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's it's a classic, but it's it, they, those, as you say, are, in spirits terms, not expensive ingredients. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I wrote a column about this for Club Analogy magazine recently after I was at Duke's in St. James's, you know, famous home of the martini, but they also do other great tricks too. And they and Alessandro made me a, a Manhattan and he used Martini Rosso, exactly. So we got talking about that. You know, once you, once you look under the surface, actually, a, 
a lot of bartenders are big advocates of classic brands. So yeah, Martini Rosso, as you say, Beef Eater Gin, all the classic gins, Beef Eater Tanqueray. What else is there? Havana, three-year-old for daiquiris and mojitos is fantastic as well. So uh, just because it's more expensive doesn't necessarily mean it's better for cocktails. Because sometimes the really expensive spirits, they may either be too woody or too fragile or too powerful to sort of blend into a cocktail, or they just kind of want to be the star of the show in a way that's not helpful for all the other, you know, players in the drink. So, um, so yeah, yeah, don't underestimate that the classic affordable brands, they can be great. It's good to hear. <clears throat> because mm. I've, uh, I've made uh, a Negroni, for example, with expensive ingredients before, and actually mm-hmm. it's not greater than the sum of its parts. And of course, the whole yes. the, the idea of a cocktail, it absolutely must uh, transcend its ingredients, mustn't it? Yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's absolutely right. It, it is putting lots of expensive ingredients together in a Negroni does not necessarily make a better Negroni. A lot of it is about the preparation as well, isn't it? And, and sometimes even the person who's making it for you. <laughs> The wonderful Alice Lascelles on her cocktail edit. While sticking with spirits, the Isle of Wight distillery is yet to celebrate its first decade in business. Yet it is already celebrated, not just for the quality of its mermaid gin, which uses locally sourced ingredients wherever possible, but also for its work on sustainability, recently becoming a B Corporation. Xavier Baker, a brewer by background and an islander like me, is one of its co-founders. I asked him how Mermaid Gin was conceived. So I suppose coming from from the brewing background, you you try and get get that vision in your head of what you want your end product to to, to taste, look, smell, aroma, strength, everything else. And uh, with with the Mermaid, we wanted to be um, smooth, easy drinking, one that would be of an evening, handful of gin and tonics, but equally stand up well in a martini. Um, also bringing in a bit of a local element as well. And that's where uh, Rock Samphire comes in, uh, which we wild forage on the south side of the island, um, not far from Ventnor, as you mentioned. And the, the, the Rock Samphire is what gives our gin that sort of hint of sea air. Um, its nickname is Mermaid's Kiss, uh, which is a nice little story, really, where the Rock Samphire grows... Underneath, underneath the cliffs, just above the high tide line, it was um, back in the day where all the sailors and fishermen, if they were shipwrecked, they would swim ashore, clamber over the rocks, wait till they found the rocks on fire, and they knew they were above high tide, so they were safe to relax and wait to be rescued. So um, like when you're kissed by a mermaid, you're safe from drowning. So uh, it's quite nice. So Mermaid's Kiss is the uh, the, the local nickname for the rock samphire, so, um, which is, is our sort of, yeah, key botanical, uh, along with uh, lemon zest, which gives a vibrant citrusy note in, into the gin. We um, also use grains of paradise, which gives that sort of smooth peppery note in, in the gin as well. And as, as a garnish, we'd recommend cucumber, uh, we find that's quite a nice, refreshing, savoury middle ground between the rock samphire and, and the lemon zest with a whole host of other botanicals that we use as well. Yeah, and the rock samphire uh, is a great idea and brings you that connection to the sea, which is everywhere you go on the Isle of Wight, you can pretty much see the sea. And it's, it's so it's a, it's a really good bit of local sourcing. But going through your ingredients list, I was really struck. As I say, I grew up on the island, but I was there were loads of things I had no idea you could guess on the Isle of Wight, including citrus. True. So um, we, we launched uh, in the summer of 22, the um, Mermaid Zest, 
which we've um, is, is grapefruit led. Uh, we're also using bergamots and lemons grown here on the island at Osborne House in Queen Victoria's old Victorian walled garden, where there's one lemon tree and one bergamot tree. And uh, talking to the farmers, uh, the farmers, the gardeners, sorry, <laughs> mm-hmm. up at Osborne House, they were delighted to work with us uh, to make good use of the fruits. So, um, yeah, and the lemons, they're huge, juicy lemons. So, yeah, really great to use them in the zest gin. Really good. It's bizarre because the Isle of Wight has a microclimate and the Areton Valley, where some of your other ingredients are from, we'll come to yeah. the strawberries in a minute. But you know, it is famously fertile and, and has this amazing uh, microclimate. And Ventnor, uh, we were mentioning just now, um, is protected from the north, basically, by and again, has this, this microclimate. And I know some of your ingredients come from the botanical gardens there. But let's go yeah. back to that citrus, um, because that's um, up in East Cows. And that's sort of that that's facing north. And yet, they're able to grow lemons and, 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 and grapefruit and, and, and bergamot and so forth. How can they possibly do that? Are we talking glass houses here? No, they're, they're on the north uh, of, of the red brick wall it, um, facing south. Right. And uh, that the gardeners put fleeces over them um, from the end of September through, through to April. Talking to the, the gardeners, that we actually have two harvests uh, here on the island which is, is very, very unusual. So in the Mediterranean, they will be harvesting end of August, September. But over here, the, the fruits that haven't ripened off, they're, they're protected by, by the fleece on, on the tree. It, when the fleece is taken down in early spring or mid-spring, the, the, the heat from the spring allows them to ripen off. So it's quite bizarre. We have two harvests. So it gives us a good chance to make a good few batches of distillate for, for the zest gin so yeah harvest september then uh, the, the second one in in april yeah so you've got the citrus uh from osborne house we've mentioned the rock samphire uh, from the coast from the sea uh, shore by uh, by ventnor now the botanic gardens what are you getting there uh so bodicea hops so they have a hop garden which is literally right on the cliff edge it's the closest hop growing in the country to the sea um, you can throw a stone from the hop garden and the stone will land in the sea. It's that close. So, uh, so they're Bodicea hops and they, they work very well with our Angelica roots in, in, in the gin. They're like spicy, earthy character. Beautiful hops. Again, let's say with the microclimate in Ventnor, it's just ideal. And being a brewer at heart, it's just nice to have a, a small amount of hops in, in our gin as well. Mm, what do they add just out of interest? Because I wouldn't necessarily expect to find a hop in a gin. I don't know whether that's just because I don't know enough about gin, but uh, w- w- what's that bringing to the party? It, it, the characteristics of the, the, the Bodicea hops is it's like spicy and slightly, slightly earthy. Uh, and, and so with the Angelica root, those two just work hand in hand. So uh, yeah, they, 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 they pair off well together. And I say it's just a little nod to, uh, to the brewing side of things as well. Yeah. And of course, um, it's not a gin without juniper. Um, you can't be getting juniper on the Isle of Wight for sure. Well, there are seven juniper bushes on, on the island. Uh, the trouble is, if we were to harvest any of those berries, the locals would know exactly where they've, where they've gone. So uh, we best leave those alone. Uh, the Botanical Gardens, again, they are growing some juniper, uh, some berries, but they haven't had a harvest yet. And there's only a handful of trees there or bushes there. So commercially, it wouldn't really be uh, able for us to use. So, uh, but, so we, we, we sourced them from Macedonia. And is there a kind of a care going into the sourcing there? I can't imagine, given the, the lengths you go to to get ingredients, I, I can't imagine that you just buy any old juniper. 
No, that's true, David. Yeah, so we work with um, a father and son uh, team or company, Beacon Commodities, and we've worked with them from day one. Uh, they are a, a great couple of chaps, and they spend a lot of time and effort traveling all around the world, uh, meeting the farmers of all sorts of botanicals, just to make sure, A, the quality's there, they're fairly traded, ethically sourced, uh, so they do a lot of the hard work for us and give us the guarantees that they're good quality and from a good source as well. I promised uh, I'd mentioned the pink gin as well. And um, when I tasted this, um, I I did so with a a degree of trepidation because I'm quite old fashioned in my gin tastes. I like it to be juniper led. I like good citrus. It's why I like the original mermaid gin so much. But um, but actually, um, and pink gin can sometimes be a little bit sweet for me, but you've managed to um, avoid any kind of um, sort of cloying sweetness um, with uh, the, the pink gin. Again, I, I'm assuming that's entirely deliberate. It's a style thing. It, it is. And it was a difficult one to try and get the sweetness level right, because yeah, a little bit of sweetness from, from the strawberries is the natural sugars in the strawberries, um, but without going too sweet. So we're trying to sort of you know, keep the disconcerting gin drink, drinker happy, but also for people that like might something sweeter, it's a stepping stone for them into the gin world as well. So the, the, the strawberries come from, from Arrowton Valley, uh, from Ben Brown, who's a, a, a local farmer and a good friend. And they're the, the, the ugly, wonky strawberries that aren't beautiful enough to go into strawberries and cream. So um, we get them from him um, and yeah, he, he charges us for them. Uh, being a farmer, no chance of us getting them free. Um, <laughs> and so we infuse those in our, in our mermaid original split the batch, redistill it, and then add them back together. So that's how we get the, the pink, real sort of vibrant, sort of fruity notes in there, a slight bit of pink hue, and then we also have the natural sugars remaining in there as well from the strawberries. Xavier Baker on the wonder of local sourcing for the Isle of Wight Distillery's Mermaid Gin. There's a vodka too. And that pink gin, by the way, an IWSC gold medal winner. So do try it. Bordeaux is the world's largest fine wine producing region, well over 100,000 hectares, more than four times the size of Burgundy, for example. Uh, It is also the most famous wine region in the world, although Burgundy probably gives it a run for its money. Stephen Brook is an acclaimed Bordeaux expert, the author of the recently released fourth edition of The Complete Bordeaux, And it was a great pleasure to invite him onto the drinking hour. I asked him what made Bordeaux so special. It's a combination of of factors. Um, Climatically, it's just in the right spot. It's got some maritime influence, which gives the wines their their freshness. It has uh, different but magnificent soil types, which are perfectly adapted to the major grape varieties of Bordeaux. And something that perhaps isn't talked about so much. But since the 18th century, there's been a very strong commercial structure in in place. It was the nobility that owned the vineyards, but there was there were a large number of um, Irish, Dutch, British merchants based in Bordeaux, and it was their task, as it is today, to distribute the wines, to sell the wines, so that the, the nobility didn't have to uh, sully themselves with the dirty commercial matters. But that created a sort of worldwide network for and demand for the for the wines of Bordeaux. So as I say, it's a m- mixture of different factors. A very good summary. Bordeaux's impact is felt all over the world, of course, and not just the quality of its wines, its legacy 
has been all sorts of factors um, in terms of grape varieties and and blends, hasn't it? Um, Yes. I mean, it's been the model for countless other wine regions in the world. I mean, Napa Valley is an obvious example, or Kunawara in, uh, in Australia. These are regions that have tried to not not copy, but to emulate the, uh, the the magic of Bordeaux by planting the same varieties and aiming for a similar climatic uh, background, which would allow them to make wines that would have at least a, a passing uh, resemblance to to Bordeaux. But of course, Bordeaux is sui generis. Nothing takes, tastes quite like Bordeaux except Bordeaux. But there are other regions in the world that have clearly been influenced by, by Bordeaux and which do make extremely good wines. In your introduction, one of my favourite parts was um, where you try to identify just what it is that makes Bordeaux what it is in terms of, as you say, it's been emulated all around the world and yet there's something um, I called it a je ne sais quoi there. Uh, those are my, my words. But uh, uh, you do come up with a, a few thoughts as to what it is that makes it distinctive and special, don't you? Well, other regions such as Napa in California or Kunawara in uh, South Australia can emulate Bordeaux in the sense they plant the same grape varieties and they have a, a climate that, while not identical to Bordeaux, is uh, not dissimilar in certain respects. So it's not a foolish ambition for those regions, and there are others like the Tuscan coast that try and produce wines that are, as I say, emulate Bordeaux without actually copying Bordeaux. But what Bordeaux's got, which these other wines or other regions can't really uh, establish, this is a term I uh, I've pinched from uh, our best wine writer Hugh Johnson, uh, oh. cut, which is there's something on the palate that that that, that there's fruit, of course, but there's also some acidity, there's tannins, there's structure, there's a compound of different elements that keeps the wine lively on the palate and also gives the wine its capacity to age. Cut is a personal and rather um, uh, not very accurate term in a, in a way, but I understand exactly what is meant. And you won't find that so much in Napa Valley. In Napa Valley, you get all the ripeness of the Bordeaux varieties, a plushness, um, a generosity of uh, oak usage and so on. But you're unlikely to get that, that, that brightness, that cut that you can find, I think, only in, in Bordeaux. Yes. I mean, as you say, uh, Hugh is a, a great man from whom to uh, to borrow, and, and he does have this ability to uh, to identify uh, things like that and write about it uh, um, so so beautifully. You talked there about the soil types, uh, two major types: uh, gravel and clay limestone. Just uh, expand a little on on those soils and, and what makes them special. Yes, well, on on the left bank, and we're talking about uh, Grave, Sautern, and the Medoc. Um, there were enormous deposits, glacial deposits of gravel tens of thousands of years ago. And they vary in, in depth from a couple of meters to 10 or more meters. And what that does is it provides impeccable drainage so that the, the wines never get, vines never get waterlogged. Um, they uh, um, retain their, their vigor and their energy. And they have other secondary advantages on uh, gravel soils. Gravel is really small stones rather than you know the gravel you'd associate with a gravel pit. Um, so that it, it will warm up during the day and retain 
and it irradiates warmth during the night. So even in Bordeaux's relatively cool climate, the grapes continue to ripen well after the sun goes down. And then on the other side of the river, you've got um, clay soils and limestone soils. These are perfectly adapted to Merlot, which is the principal grape variety on the right bank, just as Cabernet Sauvignon is on the, on the left bank. It's just a, a, a magical combination of soil type and grape variety that just works. I mean, there are other soils in, in, in Bordeaux, but these are easily the most Im, important ones. In, in parts of the Medoc, you've got uh, fairly deep clay soils, which are cold, and uh, it's hard to get the grapes to, to ripen. So you know, you, if you want a great wine from the left bank, you really should be looking for gravel soils, and there's no shortage of them. And grape varieties, as you mentioned there, we tend to associate left bank with uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, right bank with Merlot. Uh, but you say uh, in the book it is um, more nuanced than that, isn't it? It is. There have always been, at least for the last 120 years, five principal grape varieties in, in Bordeaux, Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, Merlot, but also uh, Cabernet Franc, uh, Petit Verdot and Malbec in small quantities. So you've got this palette of, of flavours and structures. The uh, what, What's changed, I think, quite a lot in uh, recent years is that more Petit Verdot has been planted, especially in areas like Margot. It gives colour, gives density. Uh, you mustn't overdo it, but um, the, the growers refer to Petit Verdot as a kind of seasoning. Uh, it should never be the, the principal grape variety, but say, 8%, 10% will give depth and grip to the, the palate, which is what they're, they're looking for. However, on the other bank, where Merlot is a dominant variety, there's increasing interest in, in Cabernet Franc. And the reason is that with global warming, Merlot is getting super ripe these days. And that means wines with very high alcohols, sometimes residual sugar, which is not really what most people are looking for from Bordeaux. It may pass muster in Napa Valley, but it's not what you want from a, a, a great Bordeaux. So Cabernet Franc ripens usually a, a bit earlier, at lower sugars, uh, better acidity. So it, it cuts the, the weight and the richness of the Merlot and gives a more complex wine. And there are leading estates on the right bank, such as Chevrolet Blanc and Ozone, where around 50% of the surface is planted to Cabernet Franc. So it's becoming an increasingly important factor. And this is a big change over the last, let's say, 20 years. I'll come to climate change uh, in a moment. because It's, it's uh, <laughs> really uh, reset the dial and it's fascinating and, and you know, worrying at the same time. But let's just stick with the great varieties for a moment more, because um, you devote some of the, uh, the, the, the introduction uh, to those uh, varieties, obviously, they being so important. Um, and uh, you also have the percentage figures of plantings. And um, it, there's strikingly more Merlot than Cabernet Sauvignon, despite the fact that Cabernet tends to be the one that's revered the most, doesn't it? Yes, but it doesn't. It, it needs to get ripe, and there are areas where it doesn't get so ripe. And remember, there's a, a large area in in Bordeaux that is, um, well, unkind people would say they should be rather have planted potatoes than, than vines. But there are fairly undistinguished soils, especially in regions like the Entre de Mer or Bordeaux Supérieur. I'm not saying these are bad wines, but they're relatively simple wines. And Merlot is much easier to grow and to ripen. So it would be the, the, the grape of 
first choice for for many growers. Um, whereas in the Grave or in the the, the Medoc, um, if you have the right soils, we're talking about gravel soils, it would be a huge shame not to plant uh, Cabernet Sauvignon because it gives the most outstanding results. Stephen Brook, author of The Complete Bordeaux. Well, blending is obviously an integral part of the Bordeaux story. So back in the late autumn, I had a go at blending myself at a Wines of Bordeaux workshop under the watchful eye of Mathieu Huguet. So all those grape varieties uh, have their own uh, specificities and uh, they are here and we have selected them to, uh, to uh, purely uh, uh, express the, 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 the soil, uh, the climate uh, which is uh, surrounding the parcel. So uh, for, for instance, Mer- Merlot is uh, very well adapted uh, onto a clay and limestone soil. In comparison, it's uh, um, better to, uh, to implant Cabernet Sauvignon on the gravel soil, which is very drainy and not fresh uh, compared to, uh, to clay in limestone soil. So really, really want to, uh, to adapt. And then uh, we can appreciate that the result, uh, in fact, is not, uh, is not the same. So uh, if we speak about Merlot, we speak about uh, roundness, we speak about uh, um, uh, suppleness too. Um, and it's very uh, expressive, demonstrative in a sense. Uh, and in comparison, um, I say that uh, the Cabernet Sauvignon is, uh, is the backbone of uh, the blend uh, because it, it gives a uh, full uh, and also uh, it gives in the same time finesse and tannins too. Mm. What about Cabernet Franc? Because um, that's my favourite grape variety, I think. Um, but earlier on you said uh, when you were briefing us that Cabernet Sauvignon, which is one of my favourite grape varieties, um, uh, is not necessarily a friend of Cabernet Franc. Yes, correct. With the Cabernet Franc, uh, I like Cabernet Franc too uh, because it's a good mediator between uh, uh, with with Merlot and it it's a way uh, to uh, to um, to to give more personality to the to the Merlot because of the climate change. Uh, Merlot is a, a little bit flabby uh, in a sense. So uh, uh, with Cabernet Franc, it's possible for for us to uh, to give freshness and personality to the to this Merlot, uh, which is uh, less and less uh, acidic and. Uh, maybe uh, less delicate so uh, we pay more and more attention to the to the Cabernet Franc and uh, yes I mentioned that uh, Cabernet Sauvignon and Cabernet Franc are not uh, good friends uh, at all Um, I don't know why exactly but uh, uh, if you match uh, Cabernet Sauvignon and Cabernet Franc Cabernet Franc is uh, sometimes is a little bit uh, uh, liquid uh, so uh, it will it will reinforces the the, the flows of the Cabernet Sauvignon, in, in a sense. Mm. So it's not matching very well. Yeah, interesting. And just finally, Carmen Air. We're using that today. I'd go as far as to say that's one of my least favourite grape varieties. Mm. So why are we using that? So we use, we use that as a salt and pepper. Uh, uh, it's, a, it's a way to, uh, uh, to, to, to enhance uh, the, the, the 
to give personality to the final blend intact. So uh, that's very hard to, uh, to find the perfect tune uh, when we speak about um, auxiliar grape varieties like Carmener or Petit Verdot or, uh, or Mal Malbec. So we, uh, we make a lot of trials to uh, really find the, the right percentage. And if we get it, uh, it's just fantastic mm. speaking uh, uh, if we speak about a blend blending emotion. Okay, well, I shall bear that in mind. I'll give Carmenera uh, a fair hearing and uh, use it as a seasoning. Um, yeah. yeah, the salt and pepper you were talking about. So um, I'd like you to stick around if that's all right, Mathieu, because I'm going to have a go, and then you're going to give me uh, your verdict, um, an honest verdict on what you think of what I've come up with, along with uh, Abby uh, Bennington, who's uh, here as well, who's a, a certified uh, Bordeaux educator. So uh, stick around, and let's see what I come up with with uh, my first Chateau Kermode. Okay, so here we go. I have uh, four uh, glasses in front of me, um, four jugs with different red wines in them, and uh, a terrifyingly enormous pipette uh, in front of me as well. And I'm going to taste these uh, wines first. Uh, we have a, a Merlot first and foremost, so famously from the uh, right bank primarily, and aromatic, fruity, it's kind of earthy note here as well, but very strident kind of prune, plum, yeah, red cherry note as well. And mm, that's definitely Merlot, real sort of signature there. Uh, these are all um, completed wines uh, rather than uh, samples from a, uh, a barrel that we're dealing with here just because it's easier to get completed monovarietal wines over here to the UK. So that's the first one, Merlot. The second is uh, Cabernet Franc, one of my favourite grape varieties. This is uh, gently spicy, kind of slightly earthy. There's some lovely floral notes there as well, which is one of the hallmarks of Cabernet Franc. And Perhaps a little vegetal note there as well, like um, a, a tin of beans or something like that. But um, very pretty and really quite delicate, quite um, kind of a light frame for Cabernet Franc. Uh, the third, some would argue the king of Bordeaux, Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, this um, left bank's signature grape variety. And this is uh, quite ripe, actually. Black currant, slightly leafy, black cherry, it's a kind of granite kind of note to the nose maybe stony kind of character and on the palate yeah you've got this ripe fruit quite assertive um, tannic structure there really again signature Cabernet Sauvignon and then um, finally we have Carmen Air uh, which is uh, uh, an old grape that's made a comeback um, most famous most recently uh, in Chile of course and it's been introduced by Mathieu as uh, a grape variety that um, is the salt and pepper, effectively the seasoning of any blend, and quite vegetal on the nose. Some uh, dark fruit there, dark berry fruit, um, quite muscular and quite assertive. And I think uh, in my blend, this is going to take um, a very small role, very much a supporting role, if any role at all. I may, of course, decide not to use it. But um, yes, seasoning. Uh, potentially. So we have four uh, different uh, made wines, all representing these four different varieties, and I'm going to blend them together to uh, produce uh, my uh, knockout blend. So that's the next stage.
Right, so I have now completed my winning blend and uh, I kind of surprised myself actually because um, I didn't expect to use as much Merlot and I maybe expected to use more Cabernet Franc. Uh, but earlier on, uh, we've got Cabernet Sauvignon in here as well and earlier on Mathieu warned us that uh, Cabernet Sauvignon and Cabernet Franc um, are cousins but not necessarily friends and that made me think rather and actually as I've played with this particular blend I've, I've really surprised myself by favouring a greater uh, level of Merlot uh, than I was necessarily expecting so in the end my blend is 50% Merlot uh, 35% Cabernet Sauvignon uh, 10% Cabernet Franc I think I expected to use a little more than that, but uh, it's there for hopefully the um, freshness. And also 5% Carmen Air. And at the beginning, I did wonder if I'd use Carmen Air at all, but my experiments um, did suggest that actually, uh, just as Mathieu said, salt and pepper as seasoning, it was a really um, useful uh, blending partner. Um, so I'm uh, very happy with my uh, finished bottle here, Chateau Kermode. We'll see. Uh, very shortly, uh, what the experts make of my blending skills. Okay, so it's the um, it's the judgment of Fitzrovia uh, because I have my uh, completed uh, blend. Um, I, uh, as I was explaining just now, I ended up using more uh, Merlot than I thought I was going to do, um, just based on my uh, trials, which I was quite surprised by. Um, I thought I might go a bit Cabernet Sauvignon dominant, but I didn't in the end. I went 50% uh, uh, Merlot, uh, 35 Cabernet Sauvignon, 10 Cabernet Franc, bearing in mind what you were saying earlier, Mathieu, about uh, the Cabernet relationship there. And um, to my own surprise, I ended up uh, putting 5% um, seasoning in there with the Carmen Air. I wasn't sure I was going to, but I did. So I'm going to pour you each a little glass of this uh see what you think so i have mature here with me and i have uh, abby a uh, certified uh, bordeaux educator and i've asked them to be completely honest and not be at all polite um well maybe slightly polite but um uh, have a, a a sniff and a uh, a taste and see what you think of the uh inaugural um chateau kermode uh, so here we go Cheers, thank you. yeah well you're welcome thank you Well, um, I'm not going to give my own tasting note um, quite yet. Reasonably happy with this. Uh, but then it's not about what I think, really. It's about what our experts uh, think here. So, uh, first of all, um, uh, Mathieu, what do you make of what I've come up with? Um, I'm surprised and happy that uh, you, uh, you learn very fast uh, in terms of uh, blend. Um, because I have the sensation that uh, as, uh, your blend is already... Um, uh, very um, uh, link linked uh, uh, to, to, to together, and um, I I feel the, the the part of the merlot which is uh, a little bit grainy and uh, not aggressive at all, and um, or I also feel some uh, freshness which is so important in uh, Bordeaux blend. Congrats! Oh David. wow! All right. Well, thank you very much. This this man has not been paid to say this, by the way. I honestly did say Abby can uh, can uh, can. Uh, 
pay testimony to this that I asked you to be honest. So, Abby, what do you reckon? You don't have to be polite either. I, I don't have to be polite, but I will be because it deserves to be polite. I couldn't agree more with Mathieu. I'd like to find fault with it, but I can't. This is absolutely packed with those black and uh, black rich fruits. Really elegant, and I love the little blueberries coming through from that Merlot. I, really lovely, and that little backbone of uh, tannins that you have. Nicely judged. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, when I was saying to you, I was surprised by how, how much Merlot I'd used. Um, you didn't look very surprised at all. Um, you're obviously uh, very familiar with these uh, uh, Bordeaux wines. So um, Merlot um, gets a, a, a kind of tough time sometimes as a, a, as a grape variety. Um, but actually, in the blend, it, it really is a massively useful ingredient, isn't it? I think it comes into its own in a blend, and I think that's what's... It's a much maligned grape variety when it's a single varietal, but when it works in harmony with these other varieties, I think it really does sing, and it, and it is done in this glass, so thank you. Well, thank you. Well, that was a really fascinating experiment. That is the first time I've ever blended a red wine. I've done it once with white, and, um, well, maybe maybe Chateau Kermode is going to take the world by storm. Let's, let's see, but... Um, Abby uh, Mathieu, thank you very much indeed. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Old vines can produce wines that are truly transcendent, often from ancient varieties that have come close to extinction and frequently from forgotten vineyards. There's also evidence that these veteran vines are actually fit for the times, proving their worth by adapting far better to climate change. Yet old vines are still being grubbed up at an alarming rate. Master of Wine Sarah Abbott is co-founder of the Old Vine Conference, and she told me why the cause is so important. They are part of a kind of underestimated heritage of wine, cultural heritage and agricultural heritage. And they, first of all, make really delicious and typically really unique wine. But also, they're kind of like arcs of genetic diversity. And there are quite a lot of organisations all across the world in different regions set up to preserve their local viticultural heritage. And the reason why this is significant is because it's about preserving the diversity and biodiversity and cultural diversity of wine at a time of really growing um, sort of um, homogenization and standardization. So something like 80% of the world's vineyards are accounted for by about 20 different grape varieties. So we don't want to lose this. It's like every other area of great food and wine and deliciousness. Not only does it bring you joy, but also diversity is resilience. And wine needs diversity, just like every other type of agricultural uh, area at the moment. And uh, an old vine doesn't have to be an almost extinct variety, does it? Because, for example, um, Chenin Blanc um, is still uh, fairly commonplace as a grape variety. And yet um, there is um, a real, that word of transcendence um, in old vine Chenin Blanc, isn't there? Yes, there are definitely some varieties which are kind of transformed by age and they come into their own with age. 
Chenin Blanc is one of them, especially in South Africa. And the South Africans were really pioneers of celebrating this, the the value of old vine heritage. Uh, Rosa Kruger and Andre Margenthal founded the old vine project there. But Chenin Blanc is one of these, they kind of come good, you know, when they're, when they're young vines, they're a bit unruly, you know, they tend to crop um, yield very high. Um, and they are absolutely, there are certain varieties which reward you with age. Grenache is another one, Chenin, Grenache, um, quite a lot actually of the sort of the Mediterranean varieties like Sanso, um, Sangiovese in Italy. So yeah, you can kind of think about, I always think of vine varieties as kind of like characters in a play, you know, and if you think some of them are really kind of like um, a bit delinquent (laughs) when they're young and then they come good with maturity. But yeah, it doesn't, um, that's true. It's, it's not just about rarity. Um, it's, it's a nexus of factors. So why are these old vines being grubbed up around the world? Because it's estimated something like 90% of the old vines that we could have had have, have been lost, I think. Um, is it just about yields? No, it's not only about yields. If we can zoom out a bit, I think... The reason that the diversity of grape varieties has declined, really, you can first of all, you can go back to the 1800s when you had phylloxera, the devastating uh, pest that basically led to the uh, destruction of a lot of European vineyards. But then after the Second World War, um, the whole trend for farming is when literally societies were afraid that they're, you know, they would not be able to feed themselves. There was this what they what was thought of was of, uh, as a kind of an improvement of agriculture where a lot of the more like cottage agricultural um practices very localized were apparently well, what they what they thought they were doing was improving it and this led to a kind of a standardization and um and the sourcing of new planting vines from nurseries um, rather than taking um, massal cuttings from your existing vineyards and so on, I mean, wine as um, as an offer has become truly global now. You have new markets, new consumers for wine that have emerged, um, and um, and that's fantastic. But also, you have declining consumption in some of the traditional markets. And when I say international varieties. I'm not anti them, but varieties such as Cabernet Sauvignon, Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, even Merlot, these have become a, a sort of a lingua franca of the wine world. So they're recognized and desired all over the world, very much driven by this concept of noble varieties. I think noble and ennoble varieties are, is a, a kind of a crazy way to think about wine. But anyway, so there's this trend for certain great varieties to become almost like a, a an international brand so that there's this pressure to actually plant more of those um, and to to dig up lots of these very specialized very um, highly localized varieties you saw this a lot in Italy but actually Italy is really coming back from that um, and Italy is actually becoming a real center for the appreciation and um, sort of restoration of these really, really local, um, 
highly sort of niche, completely delicious varieties, which give the most incredibly distinctive and, and delicious wines. Tell us a bit more about this adaptation to climate change that is seen in older vines, because as I mentioned in the introduction, this makes um, these older vines, uh, lower yielding though they may be, uh, potentially a really a thoroughly modern sort of addition to the armory that we need um, to adapt to global warming, uh, doesn't it? It does. Anyone who's really interested in geeking out on this, I'd recommend you go to our website, actually, www.oldvines.org. And we link to various sources and publications. But the main one is um, a, a doctoral uh, thesis written by uh, Dr. Dylan Grigg, who is a, a fantastic viticulturalist based in Australia. Um, and he carried out this uh, award-winning research where he compared um, old vine Grenache in Australia, which was, he was able to do it because there were young vines in almost identical conditions very nearby. And he carried out an analysis into what was happening in these different vines during the growing season. And what he found was that not only did the older vines basically metabolize in drought conditions more effectively and just kind of handled the drought in a way that didn't compromise their health, their water status, um, and um, and basically um, their yeah their health and their water status and their kind of healthy survival, but also um, there is evidence that. Over time, you can almost, I mean, plant scientists will not like me saying this, but it's like they learn a lesson. Essentially, it's called epigenetic adaptation. And, and the, the plants actually reconfigure their genetic um, code to cope with the fact and to kind of, they learn from experience on, oh, here's this particular site, or we always go through a bit of a drought at this time. And, and then what happens over time is, they basically become almost really wise to their location. And the thing about um, grape wine is grape wine comes from a knife edge of a plant that is just, just struggling slightly to survive. Just the plant needs to be a little bit anxious to produce grapefruit because grapes are like the babies of the vine. And um, in, if if you give a vine everything it needs with no stress, it'll just keep climbing. I mean, these are climbers, they're lianas. If the vine thinks, oh, I'm a bit worried about what's going to happen to me, I need to get my genetic code out there. I need to reproduce. That's when they put their efforts into fruit. So all great minds around the world are basically all predicated on this knife edge of benign stress for vines. But what they find is that also... Vines that have been established in a particular location for um, uh, for many years, they adapt to survive this and to reproduce in this location. But guess what? When you take cuttings from those vines, the, those adaptations are actually passed on to the offspring. So um, all the kind of, if you like, the wisdom that the vine has developed can be passed on to its offspring. And in Australia, this has led to a big focus on what they call heritage cuttings. So they'll take cuttings from old vines that um, are actually 
you know, really prized for making great quality fruit, for being really adapted, almost effortlessly healthy in their location. And they will replant new vineyards from those cuttings because those cuttings will have the genetic adaptation of the parents. And it means that they know that those cuttings will actually also thrive in that given location so this is the other thing about these old vines and um, and this genetic diversity is that if you just get rid of them and you plant standardized clones from a nursery, there's all this adaptation and if you like wisdom and understanding of the environment that is lost. Sarah Abbott, MW, co-founder of the Old Vine Conference. Well, those historic old vines, some pre-phylloxera, ungrafted contribute to one of the world's most prestigious ports, Nacional from Quinta de Noval. Established in 1715 in the Douro Valley, it's now part of the Axa Malissime group of wineries. Carlos Agreos is in charge there and he explained to me why co-fermentation was so important in the Douro. It's always related to port. If we think that all the, the great ports, and certainly all the great ports at Naval, have always been made by co-fermenting varieties. That, I think, leads us uh, to where we are at co-fermenting for, for, for dry wines. And, and, and as I said before, uh, we prefer to do that than actually blending the wines after they're made. It's a bit like... Uh... The field blend, the concept being, you know, that it's... That's exactly, it's exactly it, yes. It it, it kind of happens there in the vineyard. Um, It's a more natural process, I guess, in a sense. Well, it is. And uh, take Nacional, for instance, it's a field blend. And uh, we we pick it and pick all the grapes in one day and and co-ferment them, ferment them all together. And, and we have a remarkable result. I suppose if, if we picked them all individually and fermented them separately, uh, we wouldn't achieve the same results. So there's a lot of chemical uh, reactions going on during co-fermentation that, in our view, uh, produce better wines. And that undoubtedly is the case. Nationale, for those who don't know, it is your uh, top port from a, a beautiful plot that, as you say, is a, um, a field blend with a whole array of different uh, grape varieties growing. Uh, but yes. uh, it, this might sound like a very basic question, but surely not everything can be ripe at the same time on the same given day that you pick. OK, um, I'll, I'll, two things there um, that you, you, you're, you're correct. Absolutely right. Not all varieties ripen at the same time. But in the case of a national or the old traditional old vines, as we call them, with mixed varieties, they were planted like that on purpose. So that means that when you decide to harvest, you are in actually picking uh, varieties that are overripe, some that are just ripe, and others that are underripe. And this blend together gives us a homogeneous must every year. You see, that was the concept of old vines and mixed varieties. We try and co-ferment them as ripe as 
can be or, or very close to ripeness. And that is not very complicated in an estate like Naval, because as, you, as you've seen, we have all the exposures uh, around the mountain and all these different altitudes and microclimates to choose from. So we, we always manage to find grapes at optimum ripeness and then uh, add two or three together and co-ferment. So the different realities, we either do um, field blends or choose one or two, two or three and blend them together. And uh, Tourigue National, you, you mentioned that uh, one of uh, your um, top grapes, uh, it, it, it is a, a grape that is, is um, so beautiful, so aromatic, uh, perfumed, um, delicate, but also with some real uh, power and definition and structure there. Um, would you say um, that Tourigue National is um, the top grape of the Douro, or is that a grotesque simplification? It wouldn't be fair also on some other varieties because they all have their, their, their you know, their top. But um, Tourigue National is certainly one of the, the, the most rounded uh, of, of grapes because it has a fantastic color, uh, beautiful aromatic, really uh, works with the ports and reds. It's a stunning variety, but um, and for single varietal wines also. But you, it wouldn't be fair on Torriga Francesa because it, it's um, it has a low lower alcohol than Torriga Nacional, but the structure and power behind Torriga Francesa sets it sets it up as a uh, base uh, grape variety for the for almost all of the Douro blends. So yes, Torriga Nacional is at the, at the top, but we can't rule out Torriga Francesa. And also Sozão for the massive color it carries. And, and so we could go on. But overall, Torriga Nacional is, is a great variety. What you really have uh, with all of those great varieties is, is um, uh, combined with the um, extraordinary sort of geographic nature of the Douro Valley um, and the, the various different aspects and, and altitudes that uh, you have to, uh, to, to, to deal with as well. Um, you really have this kind of extraordinary palette in front of you, don't you, as, a, as a, like an artist effectively to, to be able to uh, create a, a wine or a port in much the same way as, a, as an artist might a picture. Well, it is in a, in a certain way because uh, we walk the vineyards every single day during the harvest to find to exactly find where you know those musical notes are to create our song, <laughs> if you like to put it that way. Carlos Agreos at Quinta Noval, concluding our highlights from Series Eight of the Drinking Hour. Hope you enjoyed those. Thanks for listening, and do join us next time for the next edition of The Drinking Hour. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.